welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Now's the time of the service that we're going to look into the Word of God, and it's great to have you with us for this time. We're especially encouraged to have our interim pastor, Mike McNichols, open the scriptures and teach from God's Word. We're so grateful to have Mike leading the church during our transition. As you're already getting to know, he is a man of, of great compassion and depth in his relation to God, and he's been preaching in our church off and on over the years. We are so grateful to have him with us. Mike McNichols. Good morning, people of the Vine OC. I really count it as a privilege to be with you, not, not only right now, not only today, but in the, in the weeks and months to come. And I, I really have been praying that our time together, as brief as it is, will be a season of hope and joy and expectation, and, and in particular, attentiveness to what God is doing among us. Over 20 years ago, a respected scholar in the field of leadership wrote these words. I believe that the fundamental work of this time, work that requires the participation of all of us, is to discover new ways of being together. And we're certainly finding that to be true in our time, aren't we? And with those words in mind, I, I want to tell you how much I'm really looking forward to our online, our, our virtual small groups that we'll be launching on September 22nd. And I, I hope as many of you as are able will join in with that. And uh, I think it will be a wonderful time for us to experience new ways of being together. In one of the recent conversations that I had with, with our, our dear friend and brother, Michael Swanson, we talked about our own experiences in, in planting churches. <clears throat> we both have done it one time each. And uh, about the challenge of it, it's daunting, especially when the planter has to work two jobs while doing it, as, as Michael has done for the whole nine years that he was here. And I did it for a while, too, at the beginning and the end of my church, and uh, not as long as Michael by any stretch, but I have to tell you, I, it was tough, and I didn't like it much. But Michael and I also observed this that even in this time of change and transition, the vine is not simply a random collection of spectators. Instead, the, the vine is a people. It's a body of followers of Jesus who value one another both individually and collectively as a worshiping community. And I want you to know that this is very significant. It's a very important reality. And I am so grateful to God and to you to be a part of this body during this time. Now, of course, there are times, even when hope and joy and expectation are high, that disruption, change, and transition occur. And these interruptions to our lives we know happen all the time from one degree to another, but that doesn't mean that we always like them when they're happening to us. And we, who follow Jesus, sometimes have to ask ourselves some difficult questions like, is God present to us only before and after the disruptions? Or is God present and at work at all times, even when it seems like our lives are being turned upside down? 
Well, let's pause and just listen to a story from scripture that may help to form our thinking about this. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? This, my friends, is the gospel of the Lord. You know, most of this this great and very familiar story, a story we often reserve for Holy Week, is, uh, is filled with sadness. There, there's a deep sense of melancholy that just hangs on these two disciples, a, a loss of hope that we often see in the faces of displaced people in our time when we see pictures of refugees fleeing their homes and their villages and their cities. And, and almost like refugees, these disciples found themselves in a, in a kind of in-between time, a time between what was lost and what was yet to come. A, a time that might be like a, a sort of limbo where the people felt as though they were no longer what they were and yet not yet what they would become. Well, the two disciples in our story, in a way, are, are representative of all of those who had pinned their hopes on Jesus. They had devoted themselves to him. They had experienced and participated in signs and wonders. They found hope and excitement in his messages about the presence of God's kingdom. And even with all of their mixed and confused understandings, they had someone in whom they hoped. But now it was all gone. 
No matter what would come next, whether it was arrest or persecution or just plain old indifference from the religious leaders, things would never be the same for them. Now, I don't think it would be a stretch to assume that the disciples felt that everyone in the story had let them down. Uh, Their religious leaders had clearly let them down, deflecting away from Jesus' words and deeds by, by hammering him with their own interpretations of the Jewish law. Heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath? Sorry, doesn't count. You did it on the wrong day. Their, their ultimate act of, of falsely accusing Jesus and handing him over to death didn't just let people down. It betrayed the very work of God that Jesus demonstrated. Now, the Romans, the Roman authorities also let them down. As brutal as they could be, the, the Romans, as well as the Jewish leaders, were supposed to know a few things about due process and justice. Now, certainly the disciples had heard Pilate speak to the crowds and offer his judgment that there was nothing in Jesus that he found uh, would, would warrant his death. But Pilate caved into political pressure, sent Jesus to the cross, and the religious leaders cheered. To be honest, maybe they even thought that Jesus had let them down. I mean, how could this prophet, this, this wonder worker, this so-called Messiah, just sort of stroll back into Jerusalem like everything was just fine when in fact he was a wanted man with a price on his head? And, and when they arrested him, couldn't he have called down fire from heaven? I mean, certainly anybody who could turn water into wine or raise people from the dead could just fry his enemies in a flash. Or, less dramatic, he could have stayed in Bethany with his friends until things cooled off or maybe traveled north up into Samaria or over to the Decapolis. He, he had some notoriety in those places. He'd been to those places. And, and those locations might have even been too far away to, to draw the interest and attention of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. But no, he just came back to town and let them kill him. Maybe there were even thoughts that God had let them down. Were were the people somehow still suffering the consequences of generations of unfaithfulness to the God who had rescued their ancestors from Egypt? God had been so present, so real to them when Jesus was in their midst. God's presence seemed to, to permeate, to actually occupy Jesus. But now the disciples could only cry out with him as he quoted the psalmist, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, isn't that kind of how it works when things we have enjoyed and cherished are disrupted, taken from us even? In, In our experience of loss, we often feel as though someone or something has let us down. It could be the people in our lives. It could be the the systems that frame our our governments and our schools and our churches. And and maybe we even think that God may have let us down, that that maybe he's asleep at the switch or he's just disinterested in us, or maybe he's even punishing us. You know, the impact of COVID-19 is a case in point. So much has been lost, not not just here in the United States, but but all over the world. There there has been loss of life, loss of mobility, loss of employment, loss of savings, loss of relationships even. There's there's no shortage of blame to pass around because people feel insecure and let down by those who are supposed to be running things in the world. 
And some have truly asked, where's God in all of this? In, uh, in their despair and pain, these two disciples had little imagination, it seems, for the possibility that Jesus might be present to them in their time of loss. And yet, there he was with them the whole time as they walked, just coming along the road, somehow masked from them so that he seemed to be nothing more than a fellow traveler. And when they arrived at their destination, we're told that, that their new companion just kept moving. And in doing so, he provided them with a choice to make. Would they just let him leave with his words fading into the fog of their minds as they just now return to their former despair? Or, or would their cultural value of hospitality be energized by the unique presence of this man? And of course, we know from our text that they chose wisely. And Jesus reveals himself to them. There's nothing flashy about it, nothing explosive about what he does. He simply blesses and breaks bread. And they recognize something in that very simple act of presence. And they suddenly see who he is. And that's when something stirs. That's when they start piecing things together. And they speak of their hearts burning when, when Jesus spoke to them. And of course, their hearts would have been burning before that, but, but more with fear and grief. But now they burned in a, in a different way as Jesus reminded them of God's purposes and intentions. You know, in, in this in-between time that, that we're experiencing together right now, we might relate in some ways to Cleopas and his friend. Along with them, maybe we may be wondering, where, where is God in, in all of the disruptions that we are experiencing right now, globally and, and nationally with the pandemic, with fractured economies, with violent demonstrations in a number of cities, and along with our own local concerns within our own church. And, and for some of you, you may be experiencing disruptions that are entirely unique to your life, disruptions that are very, very personal. And in times like these, we, we feel as though the earth has shifted under our feet and we're struggling to find something to hold on to, a, a way to orient ourselves as we navigate our uncertain times. Many years ago, my wife Emily and I spent two weeks in the North Island of New Zealand, uh, working with a team as we ministered in, in several churches there. And it was, a, it was a wonderful time. And yes, New Zealand is Middle Earth. I didn't see any hobbits, but I wanted to. Anyway, during our second week there, we stayed with a family in uh, the southern end of the North Island, a little town called Napier, a lovely community. And, uh, and one afternoon, our host took us on a sightseeing tour. And part of our little tour was going up to the top of a really high cone-shaped mountain uh, and... Uh, it was a favorite place for hang gliders to just launch themselves into the air, or as I like to say, for lunatics to launch themselves into the air. No offense to the hang gliding community if that's what you're a part of. Anyway, he, he pointed out beyond that, and, and there were these rolling green hills, three or four of them in a row, like they'd just been set up there. And he says, you see those hills? He said, those hills didn't exist prior to 1931. 
Now, this is the mid-1990s. Those are fairly new hills. And here's what I learned, that in February of 1931, a devastating 7.8 on the Richter scale earthquake hit that area, completely leveling the two towns of Napier and Hastings. And the, the Hawks Bay earthquake, as it was called, not only destroyed buildings and roads, killing over 250 people, but it also created new hills where there had once been valleys and laid out new valleys where once there had been hills. When the survivors of that quake staggered to their feet after two and a half minutes of intense shaking, nothing would have been recognizable to them. Uh, buildings were gone, roads were disrupted and upturned. The hill that used to be there is gone. Where's my valley? Uh, they could now throw away all of their old roadmaps because those tools were no longer useful for guiding the people through their communities. But there still was one thing that was useful to them, and that was a compass. A compass would always orient them toward true north, regardless of the disruptions. You know, I think the Hawke's Bay earthquake offers to us an apt metaphor for this significant time of change and transition. You see, the, the earthquake itself was when the change occurred. Uh, it was disorienting, it was damaging, but it was over fairly soon in the scheme of things. I mean, two and a half minutes is a long time to experience an earthquake, but overall, it's a fairly short period of time. But that's when the change happened. It was the transition that made the greatest struggle for the people. They had to deal with those who had been killed, those who had been injured. They had to find shelter and provision. They had to start removing the rubble and they had to work toward rebuilding their communities. And it would be the compass that would orient them properly toward their horizons. You know, for Jesus' friends, the combination of his arrest, his crucifixion, and his death was their earthquake. And perhaps, like the two on the Emmaus Road, they thought that transition would be trying to return to their old lives while bearing those twin burdens of grief and sorrow. But when they realized that Jesus was with them, the coming transition would look very different from their former expectations. They didn't yet know how it would look. They didn't know where it would lead, but they knew now that they were not alone. They had not been forsaken. Uh, at this point, their minds may have been buzzing with astonishment and wonder, but, but grief and sorrow would no longer be their operational motif. The days ahead would be filled with hopeful expectation and a great deal of waiting. The old roadmaps of anticipation were of no use to them, but Jesus was with them and he would point them to true north. And we too, here at the vine, have days ahead that will be characterized by waiting. It's not going to be a passive kind of waiting uh, because there's always things for us to do, individually and together. But we have all been hit with significant change over the last several months, coming to us from all sorts of directions, and we are in the midst of multiple transitions. And perhaps what we have been and what we've been experiencing here at the Vine, when what we will be experiencing here at the Vine, can help to inform all of the other transitions of our lives.
You know, it might be helpful for us to stop and remember for this moment that we are in the season of the church year known as ordinary time. And it's called ordinary not because it's, it's unimportant or that it's simply routine or unremarkable. It's called ordinary in the way that numbers are called ordinal as they indicate what comes first, second, third, and so on, in order. Ordinary time is characterized as a season of one day at a time, one day coming after the next, as we live out the implications of the gospel, and we do so as Jesus walks alongside us. And as we wait, as we walk through one day at a time together, Jesus is indeed present to us and with us. And as he reveals himself and his desires for us in the, in the quiet and simple places of our lives, in the places of worship and prayer, in the places of solitude and isolation, the places of conversation and reflection and the places at tables where bread is blessed and broken. We have the opportunity for our hearts to burn within us as we walk with confidence into the journey ahead. Amen.